0: In the Name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon His holy Prophet Muhammad and the purified members of His household and progeny. ala Muhammad wa Muhammad wa Brothers, sisters, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa So, this lesson is going to be the last, the third, and the last in the series. That has to do with the infallibility of the prophets or infallibility of prophethood. <clears throat> and as we said from the beginning, this is a the series tried to establish first the necessity of revelation. So once we established that, we needed to talk about once that revelation is we established that it's necessary we have to also establish that it's infallible. So that this communication that is taking place from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to human beings is actually being communicated and received in the same manner. There are no distortions, nothing is being lost in that way. And so we referred a little bit to that in the chain of transmission. He says that, there's a, that the communication is being transmitted from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to human beings it goes through intermediaries, which we refer to as the angels, and we established the reliability or trustworthiness of the angels as well as the prophets. And then we talked a little bit more in depth about the necessity of making sure that the prophets themselves are also infallible. And generally speaking, the argument is based on the idea that if There's a problem in the transmission of the message, or if there's a problem in the people receiving and communicating the message, then that defies the purpose. In other words, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's wisdom in communicating revelation to human beings, (coughs) the idea of having necessarily prophethood, uh, is nullified if that message does not actually take place. There's no point to a message if the message is not reaching properly. And then towards the end of that lesson, the last lesson, we also started looking a little bit into the nature of infallibility. So we mentioned a couple of times that there is a divine grace. (coughs) These people are chosen from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They are favored. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that there's almost a seal of guarantee that these people are not going to take you in error. There are no mistakes. There are no issues. There is no forgetfulness. There is no intentional... Or non-intentional mistakes taking place from these people in their lives which makes them entirely reliable in all affairs including religion if that is not established then we have an issue with the message itself then we started looking into the nature of infallibility where does it come from is it something that is just imposed from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on these people or uh, is there some secret to it some Source to from which stems this infallibility that makes these people infallible And so we presented three big theories around this. We said the main theory the only one presented in the book that we're relying on <coughs> is basically the idea that infallibility stems from someone's true knowledge of reality Because these people have a special kind of knowledge an existential knowledge they see things as they really are then that prevents them from sinning. They see the the reality of the sin as it really is. They do not see the part that we enjoy from the sin. They may see that from their human dimension, but they also see the ugliness of the sin in its true form. This is a type of knowledge, and we refer to that as an existential knowledge. And we said to refer back to the lessons that we gave in part one, where we talked about different kinds of knowledge, and we said we're going to need those later. So that was, generally speaking, the main idea presented in the book, and we complemented it with two other ideas to explain the source of infallibility of these people. The second one being that these people actually feel that they are in the presence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at all times, or the presence of the divine, let's say. If you constantly feel that you're in the presence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, truly feel his presence, then you will not dare The idea will not even cross your mind to commit a sin. And that presence that they're feeling is different than the one that I have in theory. I know in theory that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is watching me. But do I really feel that in my being that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is watching me as any of you are watching me right now? Well, so this is where we differ as human beings. Some people do feel that. And lucky for them, they're fortunate that way. And some people feel that at different times in their lives. And then there are people who feel that constantly throughout their lives. And so we're saying, in addition to their knowledge of the reality of a sin, or the reality of worship, or the reality of Allah SWT and His attributes, for instance, they also have this constant feeling of the presence of Allah SWT over them. And then the last idea we presented, or the last theory about this uh, idea of infallibility is that their infallibility stems from their love towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Just like someone would never want to do anything that makes their beloved the one that they love and that they want to impress, they would never want to do anything that harms them. They would never want to do anything that makes them displeased or unsatisfied with them. If you really truly believe that you have true love, you feel true love towards someone, you would never put yourself in that situation. And we said prophets, messengers, and people that we're referring to as infallibles, they have that type of relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this way we explain this idea of infallibility through three different means. And then we said the reality is all of them are present in them. So it's not one or the other. They actually do have that type of knowledge. And we have hints and glimpses of that in the Holy Quran. uh, That they have a special kind of knowledge that makes them... Witness reality as it truly is. That's one. They also have a constant awareness and feeling of the divine presence in their lives at all times There is no distraction from that and then the last piece is they also have a true sincere pure love Very strong love towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There's a relationship of love between Allah and them So yes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves them, but they also love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which prevents them from even thinking of doing anything that would displease Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala with that. so this is going to be our segue, our transition into today's lesson. So today's lesson is supposed to be about the objections that way one may raise against this idea based on what they may know about scriptures, specifically the Holy Quran. So as we said, we haven't really talked about the Holy Quran and that it is a trustworthy, reliable. Uh, source of revelation, this is the word of God, we're not there yet, this will come. But this is to complete this uh, theme of infallibility, so we explained it, we talked about it from a rational perspective, we talked a little bit about it from a narration also from the hadith, from the ruwayat of the hadith, and now we want to add, to close the loop on this topic of infallibility, we want to talk about some of the instances in the Holy Qur'an where one may feel, when they're reading these verses at face value, that these verses are contradicting, are going against this infallibility that we try to establish. So even though we have some good rational proofs, and we supported them with some narrational scriptural proofs that the prophets are infallible, the revelation is infallible, we also run into these verses in the Holy Quran that seem to go against what we just said, specifically with regards to this or that prophet. So before we get into the the lesson, this is a very big topic, once again. In fact, entire books have been written about this topic of the infallibility, the immaculate nature of the prophets, and going through the verses of the Holy Quran, and going through the narrations from the Holy Prophet and the Imams, to see are they... Are these narrations and are these verses of the Quran contradicting the infallibility of the prophets or not? And if not, then how do we explain, how do we interpret, how do we understand these verses of the Holy Quran that seem to contradict infallibility? So obviously in this one lesson, there is no way for us to go through these dozens of verses. So what all we're trying to do at this point and at this level for for Islamic theology, all All we're trying to do is basically to say that, yes, there are verses in the Holy Qur'an that may be at face value. If you read them literally, they may be giving the impression to someone who's not aware of the proper commentary, interpretation, understanding of these verses. They may be giving the impression that they're going against infallibility, and there are answers to that. Are we going to go into the detailed answers of them today? No. We're going to give a general, quick answer to some of the biggest objections, but the reality is this would deserve a good series, either of Quranic interpretation. So we would go through the verses of the Quran, we would show the different interpretations, different what different commentators have said, until we reach the truth for each one of them. That's one way to do it. So for each of these verses, we would have to combine it with all the other verses talking about <coughs> the same topic, We would go to the reports and narrations that talk about uh, the commentary of those verses and see, because sometimes there's going to be contradiction between them, to choose the right ones to make it all make sense and give a cohesive and coherent story. Uh, So that's one way to do it, directly through Quranic interpretation or through a series dedicated to the lives of the holy prophets. And then there we would look at the different chapters of their lives, including those that seem to be contradicting their infallibility to see what's the proper interpretation for those chapters, those instances in their lives. So obviously we're not doing any of that now. Things, More things to keep in mind, inshallah, for the future when we're done this series. So again, for today, all we're trying to establish is that generally speaking, these are the big objections that can come from the Holy Quran against the idea of infallibility for specific prophets and a quick short answer to each one of them. We're not going to go into all the details all the different schools of thought and all the scholars and how they've interpreted and commented on all of these okay so the lesson this lesson uh the sixth in our series this lesson is entirely structured as 10 objections or 10 questions against the idea of infallibility and an answer to them so we're just going to follow the same order and here and there we're going to complement the answers with a little bit more more meat than what's in the book so the first objection and the answer to this inshallah should already be clear because we've already addressed it in a number of times directly uh, but here we're gonna present it as though it's an objection so if we go back to this idea of infallibility we said that for someone to be infallible There's a part that they're taking upon themselves, which is, they are freely, they are deciding to make the right choices and be as infallible as they can be. But we said our definition of infallibility goes beyond that. It doesn't stop at just not performing a sin. We're saying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is guaranteeing these people and not only guaranteeing them in in matters related directly to the revelation, to communicating revelation, it goes beyond that. And we put that under the general heading of a divine grace or a divine favor. In addition to all of their efforts, there's also a protection that comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make them at the level of infallibility we're talking about when we're talking about prophets and messengers and imams, that that kind of infallibility, which is not the same as one of us having the discipline to live our lives and just not do a sin. This is different. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for in practice, may consider me as never having committed a sin in the sense of never having intentionally wanted <coughs> to commit a sin, but that doesn't mean that I'm actually not sinning. Or... There are things beyond sins that Allah subhanahu wa Taala may require from these people, and inshallah we're going to talk about that at the end of this series, that goes beyond not just sinning, because these people have to have the attractiveness of being true spiritual, social, political leaders. So it goes beyond just not sinning. Okay, So we put that under the general heading of Divine Grace. In addition to their own efforts, there is an additional Divine Grace. And we stopped there. Let's continue from that idea. So, if the infallibility is coming to them from Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, then what's their merit? Why do they deserve any reward for any of their work and their efforts? If this is coming to them from Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, so do they deserve any of the reward that we say they have? We believe that they all have this immense, gigantic reward that goes beyond the reward of any of us. Why? If Allah is just giving them this infallibility, then maybe I'm as, if not more, deserving of the reward than they are, if it's just easily given to them. So the first part of this objection, the first part of the answer is what's implied in all of this, what's going unsaid, what's not being emphasized, is that the reward and the merit is entirely based, as we have said again and again, and that's why we spend so much time talking about this topic, about your freedom. The freedom of choice or the freedom of will to choose the act that you want to perform as a human being. If we're saying that whatever the divine grace may be, no matter what details we want to add, if we're saying that this divine grace is compelling them, is taking away from them their ability to make a choice between sinning and not sinning, if they lose that ability, they're no longer able to commit the sin and not commit the sin, they're forced to choose the right way, of course, they don't deserve any reward. And this is where we have to make the link back to the nature of infallibility. We never said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is forcing them. We said one, they have knowledge, or two, they have the feeling of the divine presence, or three, they have love towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Any of these theories does not take away any of their freedom to choose to sin or not to sin. They can still sin. With all the knowledge that I have, I may still choose to sin. And we know that knowledge on its own was not enough. In the case of Satan, for instance, Iblis, and the way the Quran describes him, or Emir Al-Mu'mineen salam describes him, we see the type of knowledge that he had. He didn't lack knowledge, and yet at the end he chose to disobey. It was not a lack of knowledge. So knowledge is one thing, but it's not a compelling force that will force you to do or not to do. It's one more tool that should make it clearer for you, that should make it more obvious, more manifest to you, which choice should be the right one. But there's no guarantee. The same thing for divine love, the same thing for feeling the divine presence. So if anyone says that there's something being imposed by Allah on these people, to basically chain them, tie their hands, limit their ability to choose their act, yeah, we will have a huge problem. But so long as our interpretation, our understanding of their infallibility does not limit their ability to sin, they can all sin, but they choose not to, then we have no issue with the merit and the reward. Okay? So that's the main answer. Are these people, when they are performing whatever they perform, all of their deeds, all of their actions. Do we say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, based on those actions, He's choosing them or did He choose them from before? What we believe, and this is a huge topic that we're not going to get into, but we mention it quickly. We believe that these people have been made infallible since the moment they were born. They are never in a situation where they have committed a sin, or done anything that makes them repulsive or unattractive to people. So we cannot limit everything that they have, their infallibility, we cannot <coughs> limit it to what they do. So the question then becomes, so how does Allah choose these people? Why is it them? Why did he not give me this grace? Why did he not give me this divine favor? And so here, this is why I'm saying this is a very big topic, it's not addressed at all in the book. Very quickly, there's multiple answers we give to this. The idea is those people, first of all, in their daily lives, they show when they have been given the choice, once they are in this world, when they are acting, they're always choosing the right action. So there's something that comes, there's a divine grace that comes to any human being who keeps... Every time you choose the right thing to do, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala favors you with the grace. That's everybody. And the more you do, the more grace and favor you get. And this is a, a law, and inshallah, one day we'll have a chance to go to uh, Quranic commentary and we'll talk about these verses that seem to be universal laws of the Quran. And one of these laws is, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, those who struggle and strive for us, we will guide them towards our paths. This is a law. Allah says, you make a step towards me, I'll make 70 towards you. But you have to make a sincere step towards me. Okay, so those people are living constantly in that. There's a favor that they get. But it's not limited to that. There's more. So where does the more come from? This is where we have to go, and there's different answers, but they're all the same. There's different angles to the same answer. We can say it's based on the infinite and eternal knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He knows that no matter what situation he will put them in, he knows what they will choose. He looked at all of his creation and he gave them free will. And based on his knowledge, he knew who will choose what depending on which context he put them in. And those who will always choose the right, he made them the infallible ones. And he gave them that divine grace so they carry his message to the others. And to that we add, there is other, if we go into the narrations, we see that those people were also tested in worlds before this world. And they were the ones who passed those tests better than anyone else. And they proved their worth. And there are verses in the Holy Quran that hint to that, but perhaps not very directly. So inshallah one day we'll talk more about that. But that's a whole topic on it. All that to say... We do not believe, because some may believe that, we do not believe that Allah chooses these people randomly. It's not a random choice. That it could have been him or her, but Allah chose this person instead. No, no, there are criteria, and those people got it based on a merit. The question is, what well, requires a little bit of investigation is, where did that merit come from? Where were they able to demonstrate that merit? That's it. Well, we believe that there is a merit. It's not random. Okay. Another point that is very important. We're not, when we say that these people have been given, to make it just to make a more, one more link to things that we said in part one, we're saying that these people have been given an infallibility. There's a link to be made there between divine will or causality, as we refer to it in part one, and what these people are doing. And this applies to everyone not just them. So someone may come and say well does it mean that Allah is imposing his will on these people? No. So now we're looking at it from the power of Allah and the will of Allah What we said there, so this is a quick reminder, we said there's a difference between what we called horizontal, horizontal causality. So you have competing causes for the same outcome. It's either this or that cause that results in something, and we'll give an example. Or we say there's a vertical causality. So while there's something that causes something else, its power is coming from something above it. But there's no contradiction. There's no competition between these causes. For me to turn, let's say for me to write, or to turn a key, or to write something, yes, I could say my hand is writing, I could say the pen is writing, I could say my arm is writing, or I could say I am writing, because my hand is not moving on its own, right? There's a causality here. There's a chain. The power to write comes from my hand, but my hand is not autonomous in its power to write. That power comes from me. I move my hand. That moves the pen that makes the writing. This is only to talk about, I'm not saying that this is imposed on us that way. I'm only talking about where the power comes from. The causality of the outcome. In the case of the masum, in the case of the infallible, we know, we all agree that everything is happening through the will of Allah, through the power of Allah. There's no issue there. Yeah. But the issue is, is it a vertical or a hor is a vertical or horizontal causality? So is it Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala directly creating their action? imposing their action, there's them and there's Allah and Allah chooses what they do? Or is their choice aligned with what Allah gave them as power but at the end they are still the ones choosing? So this was the, the link to vertical and horizontal causality that we talked about in part one, so if you want the details go back to, we talked at length about causality there, so we'll go back to, to review that part. Next point is Someone may object that while we agree with the general principle that what we said, and that these people don't lack the freedom to choose whatever they want to, however they want to act, of course it's a lot easier for someone who has all that knowledge, who who has all that divine grace, whatever that grace may be, to choose not to sin. Of course, it's easier for them. The whole point of us sitting here discussing this is to acquire knowledge to act properly afterwards. Someone who has more knowledge, and we're not even talking about that kind of knowledge for them, but someone who has more knowledge, of course it's easier, it's more evident, it's more obvious for them how they're supposed to act. So how can we say that it's still fair that those people, although they are getting more divine knowledge from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, It's still fair, and they're on equal footing with everybody else. In that they have a freedom to choose, just like I have a freedom to choose. No. So we recognize an answer to this. We recognize that it's easier when you have the proper knowledge. But the proper knowledge, one, on its own, is not going to compel you to do or not to do. It's just one more thing. One. It's one more tool, one more means. As we said, remember the case of Satan. And two, point two here, very important. Knowledge or whatever divine favor, divine grace we get, they get, anyone gets, equals responsibility. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he bestows a favor, it comes with an additional responsibility. So while these people have more knowledge, they also have more responsibility. And this applies to any of us. And we have even hints of that in our practical lives. We even have hints of that when the imams tell, tell their followers, you are our Shia, we expect you to behave in a certain way. So there's a di- you have received the divine favor of being our followers, but this comes with an additional responsibility. You have been given an additional knowledge, but then you have more responsibility that comes with it. And that's why our scholars of ethics and morals, they always say, Every knowledge on its own, of course, it's a huge blessing, but it becomes a burden on you if you do nothing with it. Every piece of knowledge that you acquire becomes a responsibility. What do you do with that knowledge? It's not just a matter of accumulating knowledge. So in the case of these people, these infallibles, yes, they do have more knowledge, and so it should not be more evident, more obvious to them how they should conduct themselves but it also comes with a lot of responsibility. And this, again, we can find traces of it in the Holy Qur'an. For instance, some of the verses in al Ahzab that talk to the wives of the Prophet, and it tells them, those of you who are going to do good, we're going to give them double the reward. And those of you who are going to do bad, we're going to give them double the punishment. How is that fair? Uh, so we see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not use the same scale for everyone. There's an additional responsibility because of the knowledge you have, because of who you are and what uh, status and what position you carry, there's an additional responsibility. It's not only only a benefit, it's not only a privilege. This privilege that you have of being in this position also comes with an additional responsibility. That means that your punishment is going to be doubled, but your reward may also be doubled. You choose so at the end it's fair for everyone based on your level of ignorance or knowledge Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la is also going to give you rate you and assess you and evaluate you and judge you based on that responsibility that comes with that level of knowledge yeah and of course here there's many many narrations that mention for instance that Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la is going to forgive the sin uh, of the person who is ignorant, who does not have knowledge, 70 times before he forgives the sin of someone who has knowledge, someone who's a alim or a scholar, someone who's knowledgeable. Right? So it gives you, on the one side, so this is to understand the responsibility part, because there are countless other narrations that also give you the merits of someone who has knowledge. So here we see, yeah, there is a merit, there is a privilege once you carry that knowledge. You are privileged, but it also comes with a responsibility. The expectation from you, the standard for you, is now different because you carry that knowledge. Okay, so that's the first objection. Second objection. If we go through the some of the verses of the Qur'an, not many, but if we go through the supplications, the invocations of the infallibles, the Holy Prophet has many of them and all of our Imams have many of them. We see that they are constantly asking for Allah's forgiveness. They ask Allah to pardon them, to forgive all of their sins again and again. So the objection here is these people are openly admitting to sinning. And they're asking Allah to forgive their sins. So how can you come and say that these people are infallible when they are openly saying, Oh Allah, forgive my sins, forgive my shortcomings, forgive my mistakes, right? And if we go through Dua Kumail, we go through Dua Abu al all the invocations, supplications of Imam Sajjad, Imam salam, and, 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 we see many, many instances of this. So what's the answer? The answer given in the book is only one. Very well packaged, uh, paragraph, and the whole thing is summarized quickly. Based on everything we have said until now, it should have become clear that these people are at a a completely different rank and a completely different worldview than we are. So what we may consider normal behavior, to them is absolutely unforgivable. If we go back to the way we explained infallibility, one of the explanations we gave is this constant feeling of the presence of the divine. If these people feel that they have been distracted from being fully aware of the presence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they feel that this is a sin. And sometimes this is not even intentional. As a human being, you need to rest. As a human being you also have your personal affairs you have to take care of yourself and your family and your animals and your house and 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 these people consider those moments a distraction from being fully aware of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as they would like to be so what they consider to be a sin to us is not a sin and the manner in which we explained what a sin is when we talked about the definitions of a sin before we started to get into the the arguments for the infallibility we said that it needs to be something that you commit intentionally and you break a divine law a divine prohibition or a legislation so these are not sins in that sense in the technical sense they're not sinning by their own standards they feel that these are shortcomings that they wish that they were better And this is why we have narrations from the Holy Prophet and the Imams that say, the mistakes of those who are good are the sins of those who are much better. Those who are the highest ranks of purity, they consider that good, that thing that you you consider to be good, they consider that a sin, they consider that a shortcoming. If we take an example of someone who just entered Islam, saying they should just learn how to pray. And you watch them and they perform their first prayer as a Muslim. And you notice that there are some inconsistencies, there are some issues in the way they pronounce, the way they perform the prayer. You look at that and you say, it's not a perfect prayer, but based on the context of this person, this was an amazing deed that they just did. You have to congratulate them for that. This, this requires a ceremony for what they just did. But I can't take that standard and apply it to someone who has been a Muslim their whole life. The expectation for them is to pray a lot better. The standard is different. The criteria is different. So in the case of these people, the standard is different. I cannot see them viewing what a sin is the same way I view a sin. Of course, there is a minimum that applies to all of the humanity. But at their level of... Purification at their level of proximity to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, a sin is not lying and stealing. A sin is being distracted from being aware of Allah's presence at all times. Okay? This is the answer that is given in the book. This question has received many, many answers over time. Okay? If we go back in the past 12 centuries of Islamic theology, we see that this question has been addressed multiple times, and there are many answers to it. So I'm going to list a few of them very quickly, other answers that we can give and we find in the works of different scholars without going into too much detail, just to give you a kind of a taste of the different answers we have to this. So don't forget, what we're trying to answer is this objection that we find in the invocations and the supplications, the ad'iyah of the infallibles. We find this constant request for Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la to forgive their sins. So how do we explain that? So we gave one answer, and that one is, is present and available in a lot of the works. What other answers do we have? One answer is they're trying to teach other people how to ask for Allah's forgiveness. Okay? So this comes in different. Each one of these has, you know, different nuances. We're not going to go into those. Okay? But generally speaking, one argument is that they're trying to teach other people. They're educating. It's pedagogical. They're teaching other people how to ask for Allah's forgiveness. So one version of this is while they are also asking for Allah's forgiveness based on answer number one that we already gave. And two is no, no, they're not even asking it for themselves, they're, they're just teaching others. And we're not assessing these. Okay, we're not saying which one is more valid. It's just to give you a hint of, of what you may find in the works, let's say what Sheikh al-Saduq says, Sheikh al-Mufid and, and others. A second Theory or a second answer to this is that they're asking for Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala's forgiveness on acts that are considered discouraged in our religion. So they're not talking about sins. For instance, in our narrations, we have, a, you know, a simple discouraged act is not to perform a prayer while while wearing black clothes. That's makruh; it's discouraged. So if it so happened that they had to perform a prayer in that kind of dressing and by their standards this requires this kind of asking Allah subhanahu Wa ta'ala's forgiveness and don't forget it's because of that proximity to Allah the relationship they have their love to Allah subhanahu wa Ta'ala so what we may consider simply makruh it's not even we don't even need to mention it it's not a haram it's not a sin per se it's not technically a sin to them all these makruh still require asking Allah subhanahu Wa ta'ala's forgiveness Okay, that's the second theory. A third theory is that, like everyone else, the devil is still going to try to whisper to them. Okay, so I'm using the same terminology you find in the books of theology. It's not that they would even think of actually doing the sin, But they are also exposed to this constant whispering, okay, of the evil. So they ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgiveness from that. I don't even want the devil to come to me with that whisper. I wish it didn't come to me. So I'm seeking Allah's refuge from that. I want him to protect me from even those whispers, even though it doesn't cross my mind to actually follow those whispers. Another theory here is that, and I'm not gonna spend too much time on it, it's a lot based a lot on the grammar or the, in rhetoric they, they study this, they say that if you read the manner in which these, a lot of these are, are said, they're stated, there's a difference between a declarative and a performative sentence. Okay? Jumla insha'iyah or jumla akhbariyah. Jumla akhbariyah in Arabic basically means it's a declarative sentence, and declarative sentence is, I state something about something, and it could be true or false, okay? So for as an example, I may come to you and I'll tell you... Um, I sold you this book. So what what goes to your mind, if it's a declarative sentence, is there's an event that happened in the past where I came and sold you a book. So this may be true and it may be false. It's a declaration. If this is a performative sentence, a normal example of a performative sentence is, uh, hello, my friend, I'm inviting you to my house. This is a performative sentence. It's, there's no true or false to it. What, what there is, is to compel you, to have you, to incite you, motivate you to do something. Okay? So basically, I'm, it, it generates a condition for you to come to my house. But there's no truth or falsehood to what I'm saying. It's not like I'm saying, I did something and it might have been true or I may be lying. Or if I say, As-salamu alaykum. Okay, if I say salam to someone, this is a performative. It's not a, there, there is no, of course, it could be spun, it could be interpreted differently. Okay, but the general way people use it is that it's a performative. It's not a declarative. They say these statements are performative. They're not saying, I have sinned. What they're saying, they're using a figure of speech in a manner that basically means this is the humility with which I come before God. This is my modesty. This is me in front of God. I'm not saying I actually performed this sin. I'm saying I have to ask for Allah subhanahu wa Taala's forgiveness. And I want Allah's wa forgiveness to be given to me. But it doesn't necessarily mean that I've actually performed the sin. Anyways, this one is a little bit more nuanced. Another theory is that these people, these infallibles, are constantly, throughout their lives, are constantly improving spiritually. So the rank that they were at yesterday is not the rank that they're at today. And so when they view the rank, the lower rank at which they were, they ask for Allah's forgiveness. When they get more knowledge, when they get more purity, when they get more proximity to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they see that they were there was a shortcoming, that they were much lower than they are today. So they're asking for their state when it was in a, at a lower level. Okay, And there's a lot of evidence for that. And again, we're not going into details. Another theory is, they are talking about their deficient human nature. They're not talking about themselves as me or as you, as a specific person. They're talking about this human nature that makes people constantly and always, eternally in a state of deficiency towards Allah What human being can be in a state, a perfect absolute state of worship and thankfulness to Allah at all times? A human being needs to rest. A human being needs to eat. A human being procreates. A human being has inclinations. A he- just fighting that inclination to a human being makes them deficient in that way. They're not absolutely in a state of worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There is this constant struggle that requires discipline. So this theory says this is what they're asking forgiveness for. Okay, Another uh, theory, another answer is they feel that they have received more divine grace more divine favor than anyone else. And so they want to be thankful for that. They don't want to be thankful like other people are thankful. They feel what Allah subhanahu wa Taala has given them. They understand what Allah subhanahu wa Taala has given them. If I give a little diamond to a child, they may find it cute and nice and sparkly and play with it a little and throw it. But if I give it to someone who understands what the diamond is, they're not going to, play with it or uh, treat it in the same manner because they understand what they've been given. These people understand what they've been given and how much more they've been given than anyone else. So they feel that their state of worship and thankfulness towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has to be that much more. So they're constantly in that state. Quickly, the two last uh, theories here. The collective awareness. This is when we say that these people don't only look at the world through themselves as an individual. They are part of a community. They are part of a society. They are part of a species. They are part of a history. And we can take, you know, s- simplify the examples to our lives. If, if you're in a situation where, let's say, you know, you're with someone in front of someone that you really respect and you want to impress, you have a lot of admiration for that person, you consider them holy and sacred, and you're in their presence, and someone does something extremely indecent or disrespectful, you may apologize to that person. Yeah. On behalf of that person who just committed the indecency or the crime, or whatever it may be. We do this in our lives. So these people who are constantly in the presence of Allah, Subhanahu Wa Taala, and yet they are witnessing the rest of the people around them, and the rest of the species, the human beings, constantly disbelieving Allah ta'ala, constantly disobeying Him, constantly sinning, stubbornly sinning. They are always asking for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's forgiveness because of that. This is a collective request from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to, to give them forgiveness. Okay? So it's beyond them. They are a part of something greater and bigger. And they're witnessing it and they're seeing it and they They feel how indecent it is to be performing these kinds of acts in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay? And the last quick answer is asking for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's forgiveness, asking repentance from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from one's sins, whether one has performed sins or not, the act of asking forgiveness from Allah is in itself a form of worship. So no one can come back and say, but have you actually committed a sin? That, that's secondary. Just asking for forgiveness from Allah, which is basically going back to Allah, recreating, strengthening, solidifying the link with Allah, ﷻ, that in itself is a form of worship. So it has nothing to do with proving or not proving that they actually committed a sin. So these are about 10 different theories or different answers related to this Notion that how come do we find in the invocations and the supplications instances where the infallible is admitting to a sin and asking Allah to forgive that sin? Same. Yeah. Sorry. So we only still have five minutes. So do you want to go into objection three? Yeah, I'll, I'll cover as much as I can. Okay. Yeah. okay. So objection three is we said that Satan cannot deceive these people and make them commit sins. And then yet we find some verses in the Quran that seem to indicate that there are sins taking place. One such verse says, O children of Adam, let not the devil deceive you as he got your parents expelled from the garden. A second verse says, and mention our servant Ayub when he called upon his Lord. The devil has touched me with distress and suffering. The devil has touched me. Masani as A third verse, and never did we send a messenger or prophet before you, but when he framed a desire, the devil threw into his desire. Okay, so what do we do with these verses? Quick answer that applies to all these verses, and then we have to look at each one of them on its own. None of these verses are actually saying any of these prophets committed a sin. Okay, so that's the quick short answer. Now we have to go into the verses themselves. So the first verse, what happened between Adam a.s. and in the garden? And there's a lot that can be said here. The entire books have been written about this. The long story short is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not give Adam a legislative order not to eat the fruit of that tree. He gave him what we refer to technically, it's called Amr Irshadi, not Amr Mawlawi. So a good way to translate it is an advisory instruction or an advisory command versus a legislative command. What's the difference? If you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you, if you keep eating the kind of food that you're eating, you're going to end up with diabetes very soon. That's one. Someone else, a parent tells their child, do not eat this treat. Okay? There's a difference here. The doctor is not telling you, eat or don't eat. The doctor is telling you, if you keep doing this, this is the consequence. I hope you listen to me and stop eating, but I'm not going to punish you. I'm giving you an advice. This is an advisory command, an advisory instruction. If you do this, there's going to be a consequence. And I explained that consequence to you. Okay? So it's an advice that I give you. I'm giving you good counsel. And this is different than giving... A direct legislative command, order. Do, don't do. I didn't tell you eat or don't eat. I told you if you eat, this is what's going to happen. Okay? And so this is based on a lot of commentary of the Quran and narrations. and, and, and. That's one. Two, and this goes along with it. Allah <laughs> subhanahu wa ta'ala, right from the beginning, he said that I'm creating Adam, alayhi salam, Prophet Adam, for the earth. I'm not creating him for the garden. When he told the angels, I'm creating a human being, I'm creating this entity, I'm creating a khalifa, a representative on earth. <laughs> I'm not creating one in the garden. This is where the earth, this is where the world is going to be a world of obligation, of religion, of commandments, of legislative Prohibitions and restrictions and 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 the world in which Adam alayhi salam lived, the realm, the dimension, the reality that we call the Jannah, the garden, was not yet one of restrictions that we call a religion. It was not a world where religion applies yet. There's no legislation there. It's a different kind of reality. The garden and that's why the commands only started to happen after he came to earth. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him his commands and made him a prophet and said, This is your, your enemy, now you understand. So now this is your enemy. You, you have the experience of what he will do to you. Okay, now you're ready to embark on the journey for which I have created you, which is on earth. Okay? This is completely different than thinking. There was a sin and the fall of man and, and, and which comes to us from the Old Testament and, and so on and so forth. The human being was created for earth. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told him, so eventually, no matter how things were going to spin, at the end, the human beings were going to be put on earth to have to live his destiny, to live his life with a religion that comes through a prophethood and a revelation. Okay? So let me finish this and I'll come back to that. So the combination, the answer here is multifold. There's multiple angles to it. One of them is what type of command was it? One. Two, what kind of world was it? Three, and I'm not going to go too much into that right now, but three is what actually happened between Adam and Satan that made Adam forget, or made Adam sin, as the Quran says, and as will come in the next, uh, an objection for it. And we have in our narrations, and it's not mentioned in the book, but we have it If we go back to the narrations, we have a clear, explicit statement from our Imams that tell us some of the details of what happened, including, for instance, that Satan come to came to Adam, alayhi salam, and swore by God. And the Imams tell us and it, Adam السلام, could not fathom that someone could swear by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in that world and lie. So when the devil said, I swear to you by Allah that if you eat from this tree, you shall become eternal and this is good for you. The swear by Allah was enough for Adam to say, okay, well, he cannot be lying because he's swearing by Allah. In this world where we are in the divine presence, and this garden with the angels and these divine realities okay so if we go back to the narrations we we add that into it of course there's a lot more that we can say about the story of adam generally speaking to keep it very short it's as though the holy quran is trying to tell us with that story why we are wired the way we are wired and it gives us a synopsis of our destiny as a humanity and our relationship with everything around us. Allah says, I have created this garden for you, but understand your relationship with me, your relationship with this garden, and your relationship with this devil. And what there's a whole dynamic here. You understand this, then you get that. You don't, this happens. Now, you, now that you understood this, whatever that garden world was, This is your wiring. Now you've been wired. This is your instinct. You can embark on your journey as human beings now because you've gone through this and you've experienced it. Okay? You understand what evil is and what your enemy is and what he's trying to do to you. Now I'll take you and put you here. Now you're ready to embark on your journey. Okay? So that's the answer to the first one. All that to say, this is our scholar's answer, our commentator's answer to the general... Uh, verses in the Quran that refer to Adam السلام, and sinning. It's not sinning in the sense that we have where he broke one of the divine commandments of Allah. Do this, don't do that, and he broke it. Not at all. We believe that it was an advisory command from Allah. He Allah basically tell him, if you eat from here, you're going to lose all of this blessing. You're going to find yourself in another world. And Adam السلام, ate from it. And he found himself very quickly in complete a completely different reality. Okay, that's the first verse. Very quickly, the two other verses. Again, we can't go into the details here. But Ayub alayhi salam, Job, Prophet Job, Ayub alayhi salam. The verse in the Quran is not saying that the devil deceived him in any way to make him sin. He's asking Allah subhanahu wa taala for his support, for his protection against what the devil is doing in terms of the torment, the difficulties that he has created in his life. And this may be direct, okay? And we have some narrations about that, but it could be indirect. We have narrations that say the devil came and deceived the people in the town of, of Ayyub, a. this is one of the tests, and they took him, they carried him, and they threw him when he had fainted, and they threw him out in the desert. <coughs> okay, so this is indirect. It's still the devil doing it. There's still a deception happening, but the deception is not causing a prophet to sin. So when Ayyub, alayhis salaam, is asking for Allah's protection and support against the devil, where the devil has nusb <laughs> is, is making me tired. Okay, he's draining me. He is creating situations that are extremely difficult. My life is full of hardship because of him. It doesn't mean that I'm sinning. He's not admitting to sinning. Okay, and this is what the main objection. These verses are proving that Satan is actually deceiving the prophets and you said he doesn't deceive them. No. The verse doesn't say that he has deceived him in the sense that he makes him sin, okay? And the last verse, when the Quran says there is no messenger or prophet who has been sent to human beings, except that when they desire, and the verses do not give the details, okay? So it's all in the details. When they desire, Satan throws something into their desire, and of course the verse continues. Is the verse saying that Satan or the devil or evil is reaching the intention, the desire, as in the intention, the niya, the thinking of this prophet? Not at all. What do prophets desire? They desire to guide the people. They decide to, they they want to create, their desire, their intention is to create a world where people believe in God and follow God. They're guided. What does the, the devil do? he creates obstacles to that so this is how Satan comes to create he hampers he puts sticks in their wheels okay their desire is to create a certain world and the job of this devil is to come and try to create obstacles so that that desire never becomes a reality fully implemented on the ground on the field okay again it's not saying that the devil has somehow an ability to reach the intentions So that, for instance, while the Prophet wants to guide people, the devil will tell him, well, guide them for your own popularity. Guide them to make more money. That's not what the verse is saying. The verse is saying, when the Prophet's desire, when they have an intention, when they have a niyyah, the devil comes and tries to mess with that niyyah, to create obstacles and problems and hardships so that the niyyah never happens. And the continuation of the verse is, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala nullifies, abrogates, what the devil throws in there, okay? And so this is kind of a philosophy of history. In the end, truth will win. But there's gonna be a lot of obstacles that the devil is always gonna be throwing in there, and truth will continue to prevail, and so on and so forth. This is a dynamic ongoing forever. I think we're gonna stop here at objection three. Just so that you know, as we said, there's 10 objections here. We're trying to go as fast as we can through them. This usually lesson, uh, I've seen others teach it in four and five and more lectures. I'm trying to condense it into these. There's a lot to be said. And I'm sure you guys are full of questions and comments and discussions about all of this. So inshallah, we'll continue next time. وصلا wa ala Sayyidina محمد wa ala الطيبين وطاهرين الله Thank you, Sayyid. So just the priority for the question need to be strictly related to uh, the objections that the Sayyid covered. The priority will be for the systems. After that, the priority will be for the people who are following regularly the course. And then, if no one has a question for the, our guests. So sisters. just sure, I have a question. So last time, you mentioned that uh, there was a person here, I don't which one I have to look through my notes, but saying basically the infallibles, the prophets that are held, no, all the ones that are available are so high that the devil
1: can't even reach them. when it's out of his power. So how does that like relate really to the person?
0: about the mukhlas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this was under the topic of mukhlas and we said there's a you know we spent a little bit of time explaining the difference between mukhlas and mukhlas and we said mukhlas is someone who has been chosen, selected by Allah subhanahu. It's a passive form of the verse. It's not mukhlas where I'm seeking to be pure and sincere. It's I have been made pure and sincere by Allah. So the main point about these verses that we talked about this is a direct objection to that specific point is are these verses saying that the devil is able to deceive them in the sense of making them sin and so our answer i don't know if it was convincing or not but our answer our claim here is that no the devil cannot make them sin so they they are guaranteed against sinning they are guaranteed they are protected from sinning through that infallibility that Allah SWT referred to as mukhlas. does it mean that the devil can have any impact on their lives? of course directly and indirectly so directly there are narrations for instance we have that say there was a period of time where the devil could appear to people himself and that ceased at a certain point he decided not to do it because he was helping out and he saw that he's being beneficial and that's not the point, so he stopped okay, he appeared to certain prophets and they asked him some questions to see what there were were their weaknesses according to him, and you know they said he never showed up after that for instance, okay, so the idea is whether it's direct or indirect like we just said indirect as in, he may not be able to impact the prophet or the, this messenger or that prophet directly, but he can turn the people against them. He can deceive the people so that they turn against him or become real obstacles to that mission. And he can turn their lives into a, we would refer to it as a living hell, as he did for Ayyub a.s. for whatever reason, because he wanted to test. He, his claim was that Ayyub a.s. had an easy life. He had everything. Allah subhanahu wa taala had given him everything. So he has no reason not to be thankful and not to be a good servant to Allah subhanahu wa taala. So the tests came to Ayyub one after the other. Mm -hmm. And every time Ayyub became closer to Allah and had more proximity despite all of that. All of this to say, the interaction or the the area of activity of the devil and all of this is not ever leading any prophet to perform a sin. And this is the point. So while we're saying that he doesn't reach them, the point is he doesn't reach them in the sense of having the influence, having the ability to whisper the sin so that they commit the sin, like he does to us. There's a protection, a divine protection, a divine grace. Otherwise, the purpose of prophethood or revelation falls apart. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would have no point of sending prophets if the devil can reach them the same as he reaches me then how do I know where, what is coming from the devil and what is coming from the prophet in these cases? Especially in cases, and inshallah, one day we can talk about this in more advanced you know, discussions, but it's, it's part of prophethood, and it's part of revelation, and it's part of religion that as commoners, we are confronted with situations that may be beyond our intellectual capacity to understand what's going on. We, it's part of religion. And at some point, I have to submit to Allah ta'ala. And I submit to Allah through this person. This person may be doing or asking me to do something that I completely disagree with. And if we, inshallah, we can do that through studying the life of the Holy Prophet and how the companions were with him. They were sincere. In a lot of cases, they were sincere. They were true. But they completely disagreed with what the Prophet is saying. So unless I have a full submission in this person, and I know that no matter what they're telling me, it's coming from God, then why do I follow them? I am completely in disagreement with this. I think if this war, if I do it like you're asking me, it's going to lead to all of us dying. Why would I go there? So it's easy to say, but you have to put yourself in that situation, living it. And if you're in that situation, then what makes you still follow that person at the end? It's your belief that they're infallible, that what they're doing is not coming from them or Satan. Okay, so this is the point is, and what we're trying to establish with this objection is the devil is able to have a direct or indirect activity impact in their lives, but not in the sense of making them sin. Okay, so this is the point. Do we have any prophet or messenger who ends up breaking that seal of trustworthiness that we have with them? The reliability, that we, the reliance on them, that whatever they're telling us and what that whatever they're doing is 100% compatible with what Allah Taala wants from them. Which we call, if they break it, that's what we call a sin. We need a guarantee that this does not happen. So we're trying to establish with this objection that even the verses of the Quran that may hint to the idea that this happened, those verses are not saying that that's what happened. Those verses are saying that the devil does play a role, but not in the sense of making them sin. It plays a role to make their mission a lot more difficult, but the prophet is strong and steadfast in his mission and very clear that there's nothing that makes him want to sin and not sin. He doesn't go in, down that spiral like we would. Okay? So that's this objection. It's a very good question. Any
1: other questions from the sister? <coughs> okay, um. So we understand that they're infallible and they don't commit sin. And when we say committed sin, we have the intention to do the sin, right? Otherwise, it's not considered to be a sin, right? But what if a man came to one of the prophets and told him to drink this cup of water, but it turned out to really be wine or alcohol, and the prophet drinks it? Is that a sin? But the but it makes him impure. So is that a sin or not, mm-hmm. can he be tricked as such, or is it beginning had the knowledge of the unseen that prevents him from drinking that, because he doesn't lie?
0: Yeah, so okay, so you put a lot of stuff in that question. So let's talk very quickly about the knowledge of the unseen. I'm going to start with that, a quick comment, and I'm going to come to the core of yeah. so the question is basically, you're saying if, can a prophet, let's say, be tricked Sweet. and unintentionally Do a a, a sin, commit a sin. Unintentionally. But it's sin because they had the intention to do the sin, but it's something impure. Yeah. Yeah, something impure, let's say. So it would make them impure. Like, let's say they would eat or drink something that is not halal because it's not pure. But they would do it only by mistake. They don't know, not intentionally. Right? So it's possible. Yeah, Yeah. so is it possible or not? One. And then two, can they rely on their knowledge of the unseen, let's say, or the unknown for that, to prevent that? The Knowledge of the Unseen, generally speaking, very complex topic, but generally speaking, <coughs> a prophet is not going to go there unless he has to. Go to the, the so the Knowledge of the, the Unseen is not revealed to them 24-7 at all times, <inaudible> knowing everything about everything.
1: <inaudible> no.
0: no. They access it not because they want so to, they or to. for their personal gain or their personal no. lives, because it has something to do with their mission. When it has something to do with their mission, with religion, not them. It has to do with religion, with saving religion, with clarifying it to the people, with making sure that the Quran or religion or the mission is reaching the people properly, then there is something that falls under the miraculous and the unseen and, and, and. Okay? That's one. So that's a general principle. Inshallah one day we can talk a lot more about that. But that to keep in mind. So will he know... For no other reason than just to know that this is wine and not water, no. Will he no, what? he will not know. Unless, unless, unless he goes there. Unless he needs to go there. And, and how he needs to go, that's up to him. I don't know. I'm not a prophet. How they know where they need to go and where they go, that's them. That's their role. Okay. And we have verses and we have narrations, a lot of narrations, especially from the Imams, that explain that. Okay, exactly how it happens. someone wants to embarrass the Imam sometimes. For instance, yeah. but the problem is when you embarrass an Imam, you're not embarrassing the Imam, you the just religion. embarrass religion. Exactly. He represents religion, he represents God, he exactly. represents the truth. So if you're able to do that, then the truth fell. Yeah. The Imam ate something haram. The Imam was unable to answer a question that he should not know the answer to. So Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la gives him the knowledge right away so that the truth remains dominant so that there's no reason for people not to believe in the truth. Okay? This is different than saying he just knows all the time. They don't know. And we have so many narrations and so many verses that say they don't know. What they know is what Allah teaches them. And then we have narrations from Mamo Sadiq, Mamo Baqir, Mamo Sadiq. At some point he says, if you know, someone goes behind the wall, I would not be able to tell if they're there or not. I don't know. And this He's basically giving an example Of something very simple And some scholars say You know This is taqiyya This is concealment No it's not The imam does not need to know If someone's behind this wall or not Unless he needs to know Because it has a religious reason Then Allah Will reveal to him And in another narration The imam says We hear it as though It's a bell in our ear Okay He tries to describe He gives a I don't know what that means This is their reality This is their world Okay So that aside now Can I trick them of course I in theory I can trick them. There's nothing preventing them from being tricked. But they can
1: be told to be but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to protect them at this time and an intervene right way. Exactly. And, uh, and this when it is, is when it's necessary, yeah. or when the prophets feel they have to accept the Ajib. Because they feel that they might be a trickier, and that will completely destroy the whole mission. Okay, I'm not to follow up with the Ajit thing quickly uh just, just
0: like the, just so that it's clear to everybody the answer to this one wa taala, when we keep saying this divine grace this divine grace that they have that we call infallibility that's why we said we we made a very clear distinction between intentional sinning and unintentional mistakes and sins so we're saying although it doesn't fall under the sin we're saying in the case of the infallibles What we believe, and we said even within the Shia, there's different schools of thought. But the one that we're teaching here is that they will not even forget. They will not even make mistakes. They will intentionally or unintentionally. Because all of that leads to weakening the revelation, weakening the purpose of prophethood. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, by His divine grace. That's why I keep saying, however that may be, that person is going to know that this food is haram. So this may be through their access to the unknown or Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala changes their circumstances. And the truth is for us in our lives, anyone who really spends a lot of time thinking about this, we should believe that this happens to us in our lives too. This is what we refer to commonly and simply as tawfiq. I didn't decide who my parents were. I didn't decide to be born at the time I was born. There's a, an infinity of factors always interacting with each other that makes me who I am, that makes me decide what I decide. All of these have to coincide in a certain way for me to be who I am and where I am and to decide what I decide. <coughs> so when I say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, may He give us the tawfiq for something, I may want something, but the conditions and their circumstances don't lead me to go there. I want to help people, but the conditions don't allow me to. Okay, but in the case of the prophets and the messengers, if this tawfiq doesn't take place, we have a problem. Because it means their mission is incomplete. So there has to be a constant divine favor and grace, not to them, of course to them, but not to them as individuals. This is his mission. This is the point of their sending, right? Okay.
1: Okay. Thank you for this one. I do the time, yeah. so uh, the question about the, what you said earlier that they don't they see, they see, they see things as it e, really is the reality of things what do you mean by that, do you mean the unseen or do you mean the uh, true physical understanding of this thing, yes both? So, um,
0: yes, they do have a different way, that's what we believe, that people who have a purity okay. a purification of their spirit, of their spirituality they, they witness the world differently.
1: And a different reality, they can see like, the astral, some, some kind of negative thing yeah. about it. Actually. They see, for
0: instance, a certain sin may have a certain smell. Okay. That someone else may not smell. This is a, just to give a simple example, to make it very clear. It's like a gossip. Like it, right? yeah, the Quran described it. Yeah, exactly. The Holy Prophet made it appear in some of the narrations. When you know, a woman was mentioning one of her friends in Riba. And the Holy Prophet told her that. And the Quran says you eat, it's as though you're eating the flesh of your brother while they're dead, the dead carcass of your brother. And he told her, and she actually spat something. So, on one side, we can say this is a miracle. She actually spat
1: something.
0: But of course, so we can say this is a miracle. But if the Prophet lives in that kind of world, where to him this is what Dagiba is. Well to me there's something enjoyable about the because I'm gossiping and I'm talking about someone and I don't see the ugly side. The reality, the ugly that's why I said the ugliness of the sin is real to them. To us it's theoretical. And then this is another topic that inshallah in Akhlaq, in a lesson of akhlaq, we can go through the verses of the Quran when they talk about the the punishments that go with a certain action. And we have to go into those verses and see. Is it a metaphor when the Quran says those who eat the, the the money of an orphan it is as though they had they have eaten hell in their belly. Is that a metaphor or is that real? But I don't see it in this world and I'll only see it in the hereafter, because Nabar as the Quran says, now you see the reality, the, the, the veil is lifted. So you're gonna see things as they really are. We're just gonna give you back your, your deeds, but now we're gonna give you the real form of the deeds. In this case, this was a paradise in heaven, and in this case, it was hell and a fire. Okay? Inshallah, we'll, we'll go there in so, the lesson of Allah. There was one more, more question. Let's take yes. So, we'll end with this question. Yes, thanks. please. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. I, it, it's, it's some sort of a side question.
1: Uh, so, you, you mentioned that... Uh, just please answer if you see fit. Uh, so, you mentioned that Adem, uh we were expelled from, from heaven uh, to the earth and uh, he remembered, he, um, with, with the experience that he had there, so now live your life here. Um, um, my question is, would he remember what he experienced there? Or was it necessary to remember? Or God, like Allah uh, can just send the revelations, or here, here are the uh, rules and commands that you have to follow on earth. Uh, so the question goes to uh, how, how
0: he, if or even how he, if he remembered the experience when he exposed The very short answer is yes, he remembered. So if we go through some verses of the Quran, there's not a lot for that specific one, but clearly he remembered the experience. If you go to the narration, there's a lot of narrations. The regret that he felt and how he asked for the forgiveness for what just happened, Shows us that he knew exactly what had happened and what he had lost by eating from that tree. Do I remember? No, I was not there. So to me, it becomes more of a metaphor, and for me to understand my nature and my relationship with the devil and my relationship with the world, it becomes more metaphorical and more theoretical. But for Adam السلام, as, a, as an individual, no, he went through it. And so you know, you can link that to genetics, you can link that to whatever descendants and whatever happened to him is somehow <coughs> in all of us and that becomes our instinct today. That's how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ordered the world. So that this first human being goes through that experience and he remembers it clearly. He knows exactly what happened and then he lives the rest of his life on earth based on that experience. That's the whole point of that experience. Okay, so for us... There are things mentioned in some verses of the Qur'an and some narrations. It seems that we don't remember them. That would have happened to us in previous worlds, okay? if we want to refer to them as worlds. They don't apply to us in the same way. So they become more metaphorical or theoretical for us. So it's a matter of believing in them and explaining or understanding our reality based on that. It's, it, it adds an interpretive dimension to our, our experiencing I don't tell that answer. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.